Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Truth-telling requires listening and an empathetic audience. And it's been noted that deafness of the colonisers to Indigenous speakers is one of the necessary conditions of a colonised society. So one of the key questions that I'd like to leave you with for the future is how do we build empathetic listening amongst non-Indigenous Australians so that we can truly hear the truths that First Nations people are offering and work towards a more just future? Black Stories Matter. Is the media failing Aboriginal political aspirations? This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. A sustained focus on the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia has prompted a cultural reckoning over racism and representation of First Nations Australians. Tonight, we examine the historic role of mainstream media organisations in the perpetuation of myths and stereotypes around Aboriginal aspirations and self determination. A report released earlier this year by the University of Technology Sydney looked at the past 45 years of news reporting of Aboriginal activism. The study focused on a number of key political moments in the push to advance First Nations aspirations and how they were portrayed by the mainstream media. It raised a number of questions around how the media is failing in the way it tells Aboriginal stories. And given the growth in Aboriginal media practitioners and organisations since the 1980s, what are the benefits of centering First Nations voices in the national truth-telling process? These themes were explored in a recent webinar series hosted by the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub at UTS and supported by the Centre for Advancement of Indigenous Knowledges, or CAKE. You're about to hear from a group of leading media researchers, historians and Aboriginal journalists whose work is changing the face of our media landscape. Joining the conversation are Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian, Lorena Allam, Indigenous Affairs Reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Ella Archibald-Binge, and Communications Lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, Dr Anne-Marie Payne. The event was facilitated by Amy Thomas, Research Assistant in Social and Political Sciences in the Faculty of Arts at UTS. We begin the conversation with Lorena Allam as she reflects on the mainstream media coverage surrounding the handover of the Barunga Statement by traditional owners to then Prime Minister Bob Hawke in 1988. The Barunga Statement was a, a really profound call for self-determination. It called for land rights, for compensation for dispossession, for the protection of sacred sites, for the return of human remains and for the, all the human rights that are afforded to us by international law. It sought a national elected body, national land rights, a recognition of customary law and the negotiation of a treaty. It was a very sophisticated and powerful statement of sovereignty and aspiration. But I found in the study that within days of its release, it had just become the source of conflict between the major political parties, the subject of a lot of opinion and misinterpretation, and it was really minimised and, and misrepresented by opinion makers and by the media at the time. And Aboriginal voices were all but obliterated in the mainstream. But, of course, Aboriginal media uh, was alive and very well at the time and so presented an almost parallel view of that whole era. 
the context for Barunga was 1988, which was a huge year, an important kind of milestone potentially, representing a potential turning point between First Nations and the Australian settler colonial state. So in January, thousands of Aboriginal people from all over the country came to Sydney to protest against the bicentennial. The Treaty 88 campaign was launched. And in June of that year at Barunga, which is on Jarwin country, about 300 k's east of Catherine in the NT, the two big land councils gave the Prime Minister of the time, Bob Hawke, the Barunga Statement, an historic declaration of demands and aspirations. It had, it, a lot of time and effort had been spent on its carefully worded statement and, of course, the imagery, the art that surrounded it. Uh, Bob Hawke co-signed it and set a deadline for a treaty as the end of 1990. We all know that didn't happen. So within days, there was this strident and very dramatic opposition by the hard right of the Liberal Party, in particular John Elliott, the president, and then opposition leader John Howard. There was this thing called the Free Enterprise Association, uh, members of which were graziers and cattlemen, mining executives and others. They took out a full-page ad in the Sydney Morning Herald to denounce the process of treaty making and to state facts, things like, Aborigines have more legal rights than other citizens. So we can see that it's patently untrue, still untrue, but it was there that that kind of alternate fact, that narrative began to um, be formed and adopted by the hard right. And a lot of that set the tone for conservative responses to our aspirations from 98 onwards and began to appear in the media without interrogation and it's still, you know, things that we still hear today. So when um, looking at the coverage of Barunga, it was an analogue era. There were three major newspapers, the Oz, the Herald, the Daily Telegraph, Oh, and the Mirror, of course. We looked at the four-day period immediately after Barunga was presented to Bob Hawke. It was only a very brief period, but the reportage moved really dramatically. We looked at who was quoted, how important the article was, how prominent it was in the news cycle, what elements it reflected about us, whether we were given agency as fully rounded human beings or whether we were just stereotypes. And then it's important to look at it in the context of the media landscape at the time. There was newspaper, there was print and there was radio and TV. The audiences of all of these were white and mainstream. Aboriginal people weren't ever really considered or catered to as consumers of media. But there were a few Indigenous print outlets like the Land Rights News, which was produced and is still produced by the Central and Northern Land Councils in the NT. And Aboriginal community radio was and is really strong. So Radio Redfern was broadcasting from Sydney during 88. It was a real beacon for everyone gathering to protest and really helped kick off the careers of a generation of Aboriginal media makers. There was also, in the mid-80s, Karma Radio, Tiba in the top end, Saima in the Torres Strait, Galari and Broome, Amiwara in South Australia, among many others. We had Walpuri Media, Imparja TV and Karma Productions. So Aboriginal media at that time occupied a very different space and served a very different but important purpose to present our voices to us. We were talking to ourselves in our languages about issues that mattered to us. And in a sense, there were really parallel media landscapes operating then in 1988. But it's due to those Aboriginal media makers that the voices of that time survived the era because so few of them were in the mainstream. So in terms of the Barunga coverage, like I said, it shifted very quickly within days. 
to go from what were the interests and demands of those people gathered at Barunga to the impact on politics in Canberra. What struck me was while photos weren't really a part of our analysis, there was one on the front page of the Herald that really struck me because it shows Gullaroy Yunapingu, then chair of the Northern Land Council, he's painted in full ceremonial gear. And so he's standing above Bob Hawke, who's sitting cross-legged on the ground. He's handing him what the caption of the photo says is a bark painting. In fact, it's the Barunga Statement, and it's just struck me as really symbolic of the kind of coverage that was made at the time and that it was this hugely significant artefact that Aboriginal people had spent a lot of time and effort and thought and care in creating, and it, it is kind of minimised in such a way that it's a bark painting when we know, of course, that it was a, a statement of law and so much more than that. And the, the, the whole exchange is framed as this sort of friendly exchange of art which I thought was symbolic of the coverage of Aboriginal affairs at the time and still, you know, is present in a lot of the coverage we see today. So in that coverage, Aboriginal people are we're either cultural and ceremonial people from the bush who may be even a bit naive or idealistic about our chances of affecting change, or we are the angry radicals who are willing to engage with the enemies of the West because part of the coverage at the time also was that Michael Mansell and a group of people were heading to Libya to talk to Colonel Gaddafi, and the media considered this to be, you know, scandalous. But in the in the end, I think our interests, we become a quite colourful backdrop for a political drama that goes on in Canberra, and Bob Hawke has become the target. So he's raised expectations too high with this promise of a treaty Nobody is going to make it easy for him, including the media. And so the narrative is one of conflict rather than discourse. And very quickly, the issues become a fight between the, the right wing of the Liberal Party and Bob Hawke. And Barunga itself, the message of it, the meaning of it, the intention of it is very quickly sort of buried under this very sort of cut and thrust of daily politics in Canberra. And a lot of the opinion about it at the time is white politicians, white journalists, white opinion leaders who don't go back to any of the leadership, the Aboriginal leadership at the time. No one is quoted at length. We become the Indigenous or the Aborigines. Uh, we're kind of silenced in a way about something that is so fundamentally important to us as people. And um, we very quickly have very little agency by day too. But, of course, Indigenous media is operating in a very different way. Firstly, we're speaking to Aboriginal audiences and the conversation is very clearly one of a process of negotiation, a kind of resetting of the relationship with white Australia. And it's a long game. People aren't talking about this as just a couple of days of argument in Canberra. This is a long-term battle that people are fighting. Indigenous writers show a real understanding of constitutional law and the functions of government. People are debating which sections of the constitution to amend and, and what form of language that amendment might take. There's a strong historical understanding of the context of Barunga. And even, you know, in the, the mainstream, Michael Mansell is portrayed as this dangerous radical. But in Indigenous coverage at the time, there's a really respectful debate among all parties about various approaches to progress, whether it's the Treaty 88 campaign or the message of Barunga, Indigenous media is capable of presenting these sometimes competing ideas in a really knowledgeable way. There aren't the sort of ad hominem attacks that you see in the kind of cut and thrust of Canberra journalism. And another thing, the key thing that struck me about it was that 
Land Rights News had been going for quite a while by then and it had a national circulation and subscription base and it quotes the Aboriginal leadership extensively. So it wouldn't have been impossible for mainstream newspapers to find those public statements and reproduce them. It just seemed to me that the uh, willingness or interest just wasn't there. So I think Barunga, we know the significance of it now, but the mainstream at the time within the space of a few days had just turned it into a political football and the more extreme views of the right began appearing that we, we still hear today. And I think the effect of that diminishes Aboriginal self-determination, obviously, but it also gives white Australia the opportunity to dismiss it as a kind of just another argument in Canberra about which they're confused and they certainly aren't definitely uninformed. So very few people understood what Barunga was. The media didn't really take time to explain it. It just ends up being another drama of unresolved Indigenous affairs. And to consumers of the media, it always seems that those matters are difficult and confusing and some sort of battleground. When, of course, the battleground is manufactured in Canberra. It certainly wasn't a battleground out at Barunga. At the same time, Indigenous narratives are, are quite reasonable and thoughtful they're concerned with explaining a unified message or a variety of messages to their constituents. One of the key differences between now and then is that the barrage of opinion we see in mainstream media now wasn't there. So there weren't any think pieces written. There was no historical context. There were no follow-up questions. We were silenced very wholly. And the language was appalling. You know, we were described as detribalized, as scattered, as doomed and voiceless. These are actual quotes from the from the coverage at the time. So it made me think about Yothi Indi's song Treaty, where they sing about promises disappearing like writing in the sand. And certainly 1988 was very much a perfect example of that in the mainstream media. It took four days for the Baranga statement to just evaporate. Certainly not from our perspective, but certainly in the mainstream media, it, it stopped being of interest very, very quickly depressingly quickly. One of the significant changes from that area is that Aboriginal media has grown stronger. Uh, we have so many journalists now working in the mainstream and in Aboriginal media, in television, radio, in newspapers and online that I, I'm really heartened and proud to see that Aboriginal media has powered on regardless of the way the mainstream has, has really failed us consistently over the last several decades. And it really is an example of self-determination because, it, you know, what could be more self-determining than turning on a microphone and speaking unfiltered before yourself to your mob in a way, in a time and around subjects that you decide are important? I might, Amy, leave it there for now and I'm happy to take questions. Okay. Thanks so much for that, Lorena. We'll um, encourage people to put some questions in the Q&A and ask them towards the end of the seminar. I think it's so interesting to think about how the context of the Baronga Statement and all the discussions about treaty making and, and self-determination contained in it have, to some extent, re-emerged in discussion today around the Uluru Statement or the state-based treaty processes. But as you say, some of the media context has shifted quite a lot, not least the kind of growing number of Aboriginal journalists whose, you know, work is focusing on some of these things. So that holds some, you know, potential to shift the discourse. But one of the key things that's been advocated in the Uluru Statement and elsewhere, and this is what our next guest, Anne-Marie Payne, will speak to, is the concept of truth-telling about our past in order to to secure justice today. 
So, Anne-Marie, your chapter in the book focuses on the discourse of practical reconciliation through the 90s and the 2000s, the supposed rejection of symbolism by the political right and how that was kind of covered and reported in the media at the time. And much of your own work concerns how Aboriginal history is, you know, understood in the service of achieving justice. I wanted to give you a chance to talk a bit more of that and share your thoughts on the connections between, you know, justice and treaty making and the idea of truth-telling. So I guess just as a little bit of background about some of the points I want to make about truth-telling today, truth-telling has emerged from restorative justice and it sort of came to the fore because traditional justice was seen to be giving primacy to perpetrators and the victims often faded into the background. And so truth-telling, you know, was designed to really foreground the experiences of victims and to give them a role in justice processes. So in the late 20th century, in what's been been described by some as an age of apology, truth-telling um, sort of emerged in the field of transitional justice as an important component of reconciliation, resolving differences in post-conflict situations. So during the 1990s, a number of truth commissions were established around the world, with the Bringing Home Inquiry being the main Australian example of this type of institutional truth-seeking process. So right at the outset, I guess I want to acknowledge some important constraints on the idea of truth, okay? So in human rights discourse, truth is often seen as being closely linked to healing. But as I've seen in my own research about the Bringing of Home Inquiry, and as others have noted in international contexts such as the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide, the link between truth and healing depends very much on the context in which you can speak your truth and also on how other people respond to the truths that you are telling. So as we saw in Australia in the context of the Howard government's response, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say lack of response to the Bringing Them Home report in the 1990s, sometimes truth-telling doesn't lead to acknowledgement and healing, but in fact to denial and further traumatisation. And this was something that I saw in my analysis of practical reconciliation in our book on whether the media is failing Aboriginal political aspirations. So in the context of the Howard era, Aboriginal people were blamed for their disadvantage as there was no recognition or acknowledgement of the role of colonisation, dispossession, systemic poverty caused by white laws and policies in creating the contemporary circumstances that Aboriginal communities face. I think this is a real challenge and why truth-telling is so important, that we have a full understanding of how the history is so present and relevant today. So there's a bit of a concern amongst theorists in the field of transitional justice that truth can be a substitute for justice. So some of you may be familiar with the case of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which investigated apartheid-era political violence in South Africa. And it's often referred to as sort of this paradigmatic truth commission that that all other truth commissions um, aspire towards. But if you actually look at what happened in the case of the South African Truth and Reconciliation, Commission, perpetrators received an amnesty in return for telling the truth about their role in the murder of anti-apartheid campaigners. So that meant that they couldn't be prosecuted for their crimes. And so Stan Cohen um, has argued that we discover the truth about the past in order to achieve justice in the presence. So what we're looking for is truth and justice, not truth instead of justice, which is what happened in the South African context. 
As I'm sure all of you are aware, calls for truth-telling emerged, or maybe it would be more accurate to say re-emerged, unanimously from the regional dialogues which were part of the consultation process leading to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. What's interesting to me here is that the calls for truth-telling emerged spontaneously from the grassroots, if you like. They were not on the Referendum Council's agenda for these consultations because truth-telling doesn't involve or require constitutional change to take place. So this wasn't part of the, of the Reconciliation Council's agenda, but yet this came forward from every single regional dialogue. So one of the guiding principles that ended up informing the regional dialogues was that a reform option, such as constitutional change, should only proceed if it tells the truth of history. So this was seen as vitally important to the Indigenous people participating in these regional dialogues. Gabrielle Appleby and Megan Davis have noted that truth-telling has not been absent in the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. Okay, so they point to colonial murder trials, such as the Mile Creek Massacre case, parliamentary inquiries into killings and massacres, more recent commissions of inquiries, such as the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the Bringing Them Home Inquiry, public acknowledgements of past wrongs by our political leaders, including Prime Minister Paul Keating's Redfern speech and Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generations. Native title processes require historical proof of Aboriginal people's continuous association with their country. There's been academic historical accounts, reconciliation literature, films, television series, songs, dance, theatre, the recording of oral history and the Massacre Map Project, a really significant um, initiative last year, just to name a few of the forms truth-telling has taken place. But despite this seeming plethora of truth-telling that we've seen in Australia, the process remains ad hoc, piecemeal and lacking an overall coherency at the national level. In terms of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Truth-telling is seen as an essential aspect to help redefine the relationship between Indigenous Australians and the state. And the Joint Committee on Constitutional Recognition relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples' final report describes truth-telling involving multiple dimensions as a foundational requirement for healing and reconciliation, a form of restorative justice, a process by which Indigenous people can share their culture and history with the broader community and build a wider understanding of the intergenerational trauma caused by past injustices and contemporary issues. The report noted that contested history, the fact that there's going to be arguments about the truth, should not be a barrier to truth-telling. Instead, it argued, truth-telling should seek to provide an honest account of history from all perspectives. So I just want to note here that there's a duality in the notion of truth-telling in this report. It's seen to encompass the historically negative impact of colonisation on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but it's also seen to be a celebration of the culture, the wonderful and amazing culture that Aboriginal peoples have, to quote from the report. So why is truth-telling so important and why has it been such a consistent and central demand for Indigenous Australians? Reconciliation Australia's reconciliation barometer recently identified that around one-third of Australians are either unaware of or reject significant aspects of Australia's colonial history, including frontier massacres and the forcible removal of Indigenous land and children. Despite decades of curriculum reform, the most common reaction of non-Indigenous students undertaking the Aboriginal history elective I teach is why didn't we know? 
So, you know, is it that we don't know or is it that we've forgotten? Are we averting our eyes? Do we not want to know some of these difficult truths? So we need to have recognition of the role played by the media and the education system in truth-telling. So truth-telling needs to be led by Indigenous people, but it has to be inclusive so that all Australians can understand the truth and the complexity of our past, okay? So this, this is a really important aspect. So while there's been demands for truth-telling, we don't know a lot about what forms or what form truth-telling mechanisms might take in the call for voice, treaty and truth from the Uluru Statement. What are the truth-telling? What's the Makarata Commission going to look like? So previous research has told us that not all Indigenous Australians may be ready to share their stories or their truths with the wider community. And Maori academic uh, Linda Smith has highlighted that special measures may be required to minimise the trauma caused to Indigenous peoples by asking them to remember painful past histories. So this is a complex matter. Truth-telling, of course, requires listening and an empathetic audience, okay? And it's been noted that deafness of the colonisers to Indigenous speakers is one of the necessary conditions of a colonised society. So Linda Smith also highlights, as Lorena has mentioned, you know, that sharing knowledge is a long-term commitment. You know, there's no quick fixes here. It's going to take courageous listening by non-Indigenous Australians because these truths are painful and involve the righteous indignation of Aboriginal people. So courageous listening requires empathy for the experiences you are hearing, a willingness to admit that your previous understandings and perspectives may have been wrong or incorrect, and an openness to change. So one of the key questions that I'd like to leave you with for the future is how do we build empathetic listening amongst non-Indigenous Australians so that we can truly hear the truths that First Nations people are offering and work towards a more just future? That was communications lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, Dr Anne-Marie Payne. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight we're bringing you a special focus on racism in mainstream news reporting since the 1980s and the changing media landscape in Australia, which is increasingly centering First Nations voices in the public discourse. In the past 12 months, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers introduced the Dalaringi Project, focused on celebrating First Nations stories. Funded by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas, the program is spearheaded by Indigenous Affairs reporter Ella Archibald Binge. Let's hear from her now. So about almost a year ago, the Herald and the Age hired myself and a photographer, uh, Rep Wyman, who's a Palawa man who actually grew up in Queensland uh, like me, for an object that was focused on, on documenting the lives of First Nations people. So we had a pretty broad brief to start off with. It was, as you mentioned, funded by the Judith Nelson Institute, which gave us a really unique chance to do some travelling, to get out remote and regional while we could, and to spend a, a decent amount of time in those communities, which is something that is rare these days. So we kind of, um, from the outset, we sort of sat down and thought, okay, what do we want this project to do? What do we want it to look like? And I think what we were really keen to do 
was to go a bit deeper on some of those recurring issues that we see pop up every year to provide some more context around those issues and to put a face to some of the statistics that we hear quite often. So we came up with, um, yeah, the Dalaringi project. So we came up with that language word um, with the help of the Metro Aboriginal Land Council. So it's in the language of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and it means ours, yours and everyone's. And we thought that was fitting because we wanted to really highlight that all Australians should be um, celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and by the same token, the issues affecting First Nations people should be something that all Australians are really invested in and, you know, caring about. So that's what we set out to do. I guess in terms of our approach to storytelling, it's something that I really have drawn on the knowledge that I've picked up from NITV. And I know that I, I wouldn't be the journalist I am without that really valuable training that I got there. So, yeah, it's been about six years with NITV and SBS, um, and that gave me a really strong grounding. So I guess some of the things that we're always really mindful of in in the way we approach a story is, as we've already spoken about, really prioritising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices and speaking to a range of people. So you get, yes, your prominent commentators who are going to pop up from time to time, but being really mindful of speaking to people who don't get a lot of media attention, um, and particularly in those more regional areas as well, And also just the way that you frame stories from the outset. So, you know, the last thing that you want is to jet into a community, stay there for a couple of days and do a story that's just going to make, exacerbate existing issues. So we we want it to be solutions driven. You know, every community has got local people that are working really hard to make positive change. So we, we really wanted to get those stories across and to provide the context around the history or the past policies that have influenced certain communities wherever that was appropriate to foster that understanding as well and focus on, you know, why things are happening, not just what's happening, but looking beyond that deeper under the surface, why these things happening. And as I touched on, just spending as much time as you can in the community because it's really tricky to just rock up and and expect someone to pour their heart out to you and why would they? So, yeah, we, we really tried to, to spend as much time with people as we could. So if I guess I'll go through a couple of examples of stories that we've done throughout the year. But one of the first things we looked at was January 26. So we were really keen to bring a new perspective to this whole discussion around changing the date of Australia Day. So how we went about that, we ended up going out to Moree, just spoke to a few of my family members, actually. But basically, there's a massacre site just out of Moree in northwestern New South Wales. And a massacre actually occurred on January 26, um, in 1838, known as the Waterloo Creek Massacre. So we went back to this, that site um, with some of the descendants of, of the people who had, who had died there. And I think, you know, that story was really a microcosm of the whole issue because in the same park in Moree, in the morning they had the, the barbecue and the um, celebrations of Australia Day, citizenship ceremonies. And then literally as they're packing up the chairs from that event, this morning procession is coming through town and they, you know, are setting up this whole different event to commemorate the loss of their loved ones in this horrific way. So I think it really highlighted why so many Aboriginal people don't feel comfortable celebrating on that day. Uh, And to see that story on the front page, I think it just really added something to the media coverage that comes up every time that rolls around. And one of the next ones um, that we looked at was closing the gap. So again, we wanted to come at it from a different angle and look beyond those statistics. So uh, Rhett and I went up to Lockhart River in far north Queensland, quite a very small, quite remote community. 
And we wanted to really look at, okay, what does this strategy mean to people on the ground up there and how has it achieved anything for these people's lives? And there were a few challenges around that. So uh, initially we'd been in conversations with the local mayor and he was really keen to show us around, but there was a bit of a mix-up with the timings and the dates. So it happened that he actually was in Brizzy for um, some other events that he absolutely couldn't get out of for most, pretty much the entire week we were there. So we ended up having kind of a really brief, quick interview while he got off the plane and we were about to get on the plane. So that was made things a bit interesting for us because we were um, relying on him to show us around, I suppose, and be a bit of a guide for us. Understandably, there's this huge mistrust in some of these communities, especially for the mainstream media. So that's definitely a difference I've noticed when you rock up and you're from NITV, that's the brand people recognise and you'd say, you know, really trust that Aboriginal media. But um, rocking up and saying you're from the Sydney Morning Herald in a place, you know, up on the tip of Queensland, it doesn't carry the same weight as it does when you're working in the cities. So we had to really work to win the trust of that community and we were really lucky to have nearly five whole days up there to kind of really spend some time with people just to sit with them tell them what we were all about show them that you know we weren't there to take advantage of them because they had told us that there were instances in the past where you know mainstream news channels had flown in for a particular story that they were doing one story that was a quite positive uplifting piece and then they've ended up uh, misconstruing some of the, the comments they got on camera and using it for a whole other story. So things like that that really yeah, make it difficult to really build that trust in a, in a short space of time to be able to tell that story in the right way. But um, really thankful that the community did trust us and we were able to get into a couple of um, the different agencies to get a good sense of what the Closing the Gap strategy had or hadn't achieved. And in this case, it was, you know, this is a community that's been really proactive at identifying the problems and the solutions for a long time and um, generally haven't had the government backing to bring those solutions to life in a sustainable way. So again, it was just great to see that on the front page of the Herald. It got great coverage in the age as well. And I think that it really humanised a story that can often just get bogged down in statistics and the political rhetoric that we hear year on year. And then just lastly, so obviously we have to talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, it's been a massive issue. It's got a lot of coverage, which has been great to see. And for us, again, we wanted to find examples of what how this plays out in everyday life for Aboriginal people. I got a lot of responses to some previous stories from the Northern Rivers area in New South Wales. So we headed up there. We spent a week, again, just lucky to have the chance to spend that good amount of time up in, in some various communities up there. So we were looking at how those interactions play out between Aboriginal people in various aspects of the justice system. So looking at police, the court system and the prison system. And again, I think that just really put some faces to this issue um, and added another layer. There's been some great reporting around this, but I think it's just been part of a whole heap of reporting that's shown why this really is an issue here in Australia and, and why people should be concerned about it and, you know, how long this has been going on and, and that we've seen similar movements before and yet, you know, not a lot has changed. So that's kind of a, a couple of stories that we've done. But I guess in terms of the overall challenges of, of bringing it all to life, I think that that mistrust of media is one you come up against a little bit. And also for me personally, just transitioning from working at NITV with, you know, mostly Indigenous newsroom where you've got other Aboriginal journalists and editors sort of involved in framing stories and, and sort of different sets of eyes having a look at those stories before they get published to being the only Aboriginal journal in the newsroom was a huge adjustment, particularly 
with all the stories that we've seen come up this year. So that's been, I guess, a real learning curve um, in terms of feeling a lot of responsibility to make sure that we get it right. And yeah, in terms of just making decisions about what the project was going to look like, what stories we were going to cover. I think there's always things we can do better and I'm constantly critiquing my own work. But I think overall, we're pretty proud of, of what we've done in the last 10 odd months. I think this is the first time in a, quite a long time that the Herald and the Age have had a dedicated Indigenous round, let alone one led by an Indigenous reporter. So I think this sort of coverage is probably a long time coming, but I think it's really promising that we're taking these proactive steps and that the stories have got really great responses from the readers as well. And I just hope that we've shown the value of having that round and, and sort of getting these stories across to this kind of readership. So in terms of the future plans of the project, so I'm actually going across to the ABC, but there's definitely plans to keep it going for um, next year. So Rhett will be staying on as a photographer and I, there's um, in principle agreements with Judith Nelson Institute to fund another two Indigenous reporters, one at the Herald and one at The Age. So that's really great. And I just say that I think, you know, Rhett and I and a lot of Indigenous journalists today, we owe a lot to those who've come before us, who've paved the way, as well as Indigenous media organisations like NITV that have been, you know, leading by example from the very beginning and just providing such a great environment for young Aboriginal journos to learn. I think that pretty much sums it up. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Ella, and thank you to our, our various presenters today. One of the themes that we wanted to touch on today was the question of the future. It's not a particularly positive moment in terms of thinking about the future. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Australia is officially in recession across you know, the media, for example, and across universities as well. You know, we're in the midst of an economic crisis. There's been waves of redundancies. It's also a situation where the ownership of the media in Australia is highly concentrated. And I'd ask this to the two journalists we have here today, Lorena and Ella, what do you think this means for Aboriginal justice and reporting, for changing you know, power structures in the profession and producing more Aboriginal journalists but also more Aboriginal sort of producers, editors? What does the kind of current global picture, broadly speaking, mean for the kind of work that needs to be done? I think the thing that jumps out at me is that Aboriginal people are incredibly resilient and resourceful and so the world is in a global pandemic and Australia is in a recession but our mob just keep powering on because this is life. You know, we go without all the time. We are the bottom of every socioeconomic indicator and we uh, survive, we thrive. We, we have a resilience and a capacity to celebrate our joy and our resilience in the face of hardship. So, in, you know, I've heard some of my mobs say, oh, well, welcome to the club. You know, things are tough. Yeah, they're tough. You know, we know how tough things can be. So in that climate, Aboriginal people are generally very well equipped to struggle and to withstand setbacks. In terms of the future of the media, I was just listening to Ella talk about the projects that she had managed to get across the line at the Sydney Morning Herald, which hasn't had an Indigenous journalist for decades. I think while we are in this moment where, you know, there's a lot of attention on justice issues for our mob and Black Lives Matter, um, we're also seeing a really a blossoming of Indigenous media. And I'm not just talking about people in the mainstream like her or I, I'm talking about Indigenous journalists more broadly, and people who want to forge a new path, who don't want to work for the national broadcaster or a news at mainstream news outlet, who want to be independent of all of those things and trying to find a model for doing that so that, that our Aboriginal voices are heard 
at every aspect of this industry. So I think it's important to say that whether you work for the mainstream or not, it's not a, that binary a matter. We're all, in the end, working towards the same goal, which is to provide for the progress of Indigenous people and for Indigenous rights. So when you fight a bushfire, you don't fight on one front, you fight on several. And I think that's the analogy I'd like to leave people with, that we are all in this together, so to speak, and so Aboriginal journalists, every form of Aboriginal media is doing a job, is working together to raise awareness. One more thing I'll say, though, is that listening to the voices of Aboriginal people is work that white fellas need to do. They need to come and find us. They need to listen carefully and to stop talking for long enough to understand that when you say things like, why weren't we told? You were told. You have been told. We're telling you. We've been telling you for decades. So I think the time has come for that discourse to shift and people to stop asking that question to go and get informed because there are plenty of us out here now telling stories that they need to hear. Thanks for that. And a question again for the two of you because I think that does correspond with the kind of theme that we've heard over the course of the seminars is the kind of growth in a whole number of different platforms that's perhaps made the sort of more flagship media potentially less influential than it was. And one of the other things we've been sort of fleshing out is what might be some essential principles for journalists engaging with Aboriginal stories. You know, is it essential for Aboriginal journalists to cover Aboriginal stories? Yes, you know, yes or no. But if non-Indigenous journalists are engaged in this reporting, what might be some kind of essential principles for them to take forward? Ella, perhaps you might? speak to that question? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably pretty similar to what I outlined before in terms of the way we're approaching our stories. So I think it's just about making sure you're talking to a wide range of people, not just going to the the same people for comment every time. Doing your wide research, I mean, uh, you know, it's good to ask questions, but it's also good if you've done your research uh, as much as you can before you ask questions of, you know, other Indigenous journos or people like that um, to sort of share the workload a little bit. And I think just being mindful of evaluating your own work all the time to think, am I centering Aboriginal voices in this story? Have I heard enough of a mix of people? And being mindful, as I said before, of including solutions, not just kind of piling onto a problem for the sake of a good story or a good headline and including that that extra context, whether it's historical or just, you know, looking at the why rather than, than what's happening. Great. Thanks for that. Anne-Marie, we have a, a question here in the Q&A and I think you might be interested to speak to it around what change we might expect to see in community attitudes that could be brought about by changes in the school curricula and teaching. Ian asked, there does seem to be a wide interest by teachers in introducing Aboriginal perspectives into various areas of teaching, um, as well as some significant visual acknowledgement of Aboriginal culture in schools. Uh, In your work on truth-telling, I know you've addressed this question a, a little bit, so perhaps you'd like to speak to Ian's question. Yeah, I think that's such a great question. I saw that pop up in the chat and I think it's really difficult. I'm by nature and a very optimistic person and I always like to think that the future is going to be better. But I think Heidi made an, also made an interesting comment in the chat about, you know, maybe some of the barriers to truth are structural barriers and they're not easily fixed and it's going to take a lot of hard work to address them. So, you know, research by one of my colleagues here at UTS, Anna Clark, has identified that there's a lot of resistance amongst both teachers and students to learning about Aboriginal history. 
it's seen as too difficult and challenging, makes people uncomfortable. And a lot of the stories that I hear from students is that in primary school, people learn about the dream time and uh, make a didgeridoo out of toilet rolls. And in high school, they watch the rabbit proof fence and that there's not a lot more than that going on in a lot of places. And obviously, there are some some major exceptions to that. So I'm, I'm not wanting to, to overgeneralise. But I do feel, whilst I'd like to think that there's change happening, in 2012 I was part of a a national study on um, the extent to which um, human rights-related topics were embedded in the Australian school curriculum. And what we found back in 2012 is that largely the opportunities for students to learn about things like Aboriginal history or human rights were in senior subjects and elective subjects, so they weren't integrated into the curriculum in a way that all students were exposed to this information in a systemic way. You know, so I'm hopeful. I know there's some amazing teachers out there who do their utmost to bring Indigenous content and Indigenous perspectives into the education system. But I do think there's some real structural problems with the curriculum, with, you know, some barriers that remain. Obviously, we need more Indigenous teachers. You know, we need to work harder on involving Indigenous communities in our schools. And I think that more of that happening will lead to more change. Maybe, yeah. Thanks for that, Anne-Marie. Yeah, I think it speaks to something we've been talking about throughout the seminars, which is the extent to which we can grapple with these things kind of that are structural problems, but to what extent, you know, from the inside or the outside, can you shift or, or not shift? And, you know, the kind of experiences of people engaging in that process. On that point, we have a question from Amy McGuire, who herself would, you know, fit into the category of one of the excellent Aboriginal journalists around the country doing some of this work that we've been discussing. And she has a question for Ella. She says, what are some of the challenges or differences for you in reporting from a mainstream newsroom to that of your experience in Indigenous media? Look, yeah, there's there's a massive shift, to be honest. A couple of things. Uh, I suppose, as I touched on before, just you're literally sort of working with predominantly Aboriginal journalists and then to be the only one in the newsroom. uh, Yeah, it was just a difference. It was a shake-up. And I guess the biggest thing was I just felt this weight of responsibility to get it right from the framing of the stories to the delivery to interactions with community. And I think that we've adapted okay, but it would be beneficial to probably have some sort of mentoring arrangement so that you have someone that you can turn to when you have those doubts. When you're by yourself in the newsroom and you're reading it, you just think, I just wish I could have a second pair of eyes on this to just double check a few things if there's some sensitive material or you're just a bit unsure. So that's been just something that I'm constantly grappling with. Um, the trust thing was another one, um, just having to work a little bit harder sometimes, usually when you're outside these major cities to just um, establish who you are and what you're all about. And I think often to do that, especially when I was working around northern New South Wales, you you do use your family credentials and your family name because people sort of can place you, they know who you are and they sort of know what you're about, but that comes with a whole other set of responsibilities and you don't want to abuse that. So it's just just managing all those things. And I think on the flip side, like another totally different aspect is it was really interesting to see how much more, you know, government people are w- willing to work with you and to um, give you the heads up on things that you just had to work so hard at NITV to get people to respond sometimes even just and to see the legitimacy of, of the work you're doing. So that was kind of like, oh, this is nice, but it would have been great if um, we had this kind of relationship as an option when you were when I was within ITV so that was kind of another interesting point and maybe just the other one that can be a bit tricky 
probably in any newsroom is just some of the stories that come through that suggestions from from the news desk might not be necessarily how you would like to approach a story but I would have to say that it's been really great at the Herald that the news desk and senior leadership has been really willing to listen to my feedback if I'm saying look that's not quite the angle I don't think that's the way to go how about we do it this way Um, and they've been really responsive to that thankfully I think if if you had leadership and, you know, the editor, especially at the Herald, Lisa Davies, has been really great from the start. So I think if, without that, it would be really, really challenging um, if you were yeah, getting having some issues with, with that side of it. But, yeah, overall it's, it's been great, but it's, it's definitely a challenge and I would encourage people to have a bit of a, a support network if you're, if you're doing that. Great. Thanks for that. And thanks for sticking out in that newsroom and producing the work that you have done. <laughs> Lorena, a question for you, which actually, you know, flows on from this, I think, which it's a similar question, but it's asking how you think it's changed for you over the past sort of 20 to 30 years, having been working in uh, media for several decades now. Have non-Indigenous journalists that you've worked with and editors and so on, have they changed and improved their practice? Mm. Uh, Yes and no. I have not worked for commercial media, so I can only speak as someone who's spent many decades as a public broadcaster. And as a fixer for overseas media, yes, things have changed. Things have improved, but it's only because of the, you know, hard work, persistence and emotional labour of a small number of Aboriginal people who've managed to stick it out in big, unwelcoming, difficult, sometimes racist, white institutions. So it's, it's um, yeah, there's change, but it's because those people have put their careers on the line or have stood up where there's often a big power imbalance and fought hard for change to happen, even if it's just basic changes to pronunciation or descriptors that media use, like the term Aboriginal leader, which still just refuses to die, but it's a term that we find problematic. So that's just a really simple example. Things improve when there's a diversity of Indigenous voices and opinions at all levels of the system. So it isn't just about having a good editor or changing an individual's mind, although that's really, really important. What needs to change and what has changed incrementally is the structure of places to accommodate Indigenous voices and to step back and say, all right, well, you you mob are the experts on this story or you know what you're doing, we're going to leave this to you. So when Ella talks about trust in Indigenous communities, which is, you know, often non-existent because of the actions of our predecessors, when you go to a community you have to redevelop trust, but also you have to build trust in an organisation so that they will let you do your job. That is really hard work. It takes years of hard work to prove yourself. And often, as my dad used to say, you have to be twice as good to be seen as equal. And that's certainly been the case for Aboriginal journalists over time. It's really heartening to see how many different voices there are in the media now and many different media outlets. Young journos working you know, across the spectrum, which is fantastic. The borders between places are porous. So say Ella was talking about she's working at the Herald, now she's going to the ABC. I'd love to see more of that happen. So our mob can have careers in the media that aren't dependent on their capacity to cover Indigenous affairs so that they can do whatever they want to do and that our voices are taken seriously and that there's this suspension of the notion that that bias creeps in when an Indigenous reporter covers an Indigenous story. It's all based on this assumption that the white media do the right thing and that that coverage is correct. That's the way to cover news. And if you step outside that, it's somehow suspect. We have to get past that. I think it's happening slowly. 
through the work of people like Ella and Amy and NITV, we're slowly chipping away at the fourth wall, I think. You've just heard Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian, Lorena Allam. You've also been listening to Indigenous Affairs Reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Ella Archibald Binge, and Communications Lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, Dr Anne-Marie Payne. They were taking part in an online forum titled Black Stories Matter, Is the Media Failing Aboriginal Political Aspirations? The event was facilitated by Amy Thomas, Research Assistant in Social and Political Science in the Faculty of Arts at UTS. This audio was recorded as part of a seminar series called Black Stories Matter. The seminars were organised by Amy Thomas, Heidi Norman and Therese Apollonio of the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub at UTS and supported by the Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledges. A podcast series, Black Stories Matter, based on the seminars, is now available wherever you get your podcasts. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we explore the links between writing and activism for change. We only need to look to these stories of of the struggle of Aboriginal people and, of course, of people of colour all over the world to say the people who won these fights, they spent, like Mandela, decades in jail. They spent years and years as guerrilla fighters, their life at risk every day, is that you've got to be in it for life. And I see that my work is just a reflection of the courage of people who who don't give up. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Thank you.